Section 09 of Volume 1B of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fred DeBerardinus. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 09, Chapter 13, Part 1. Edward I. The English were as yet so little inured to obedience under a regular government that the death of almost every king since the conquest had been attended with disorders, and the council, reflecting on the recent civil wars and on the animosities which naturally remained after these great convulsions, had reason to apprehend dangerous consequences from the absence of the son and successor of Henry. They therefore hastened to proclaim Prince Edward to swear allegiance to him and to summon the states of the kingdom in order to provide for the public peace in this important conjuncture. Walter Giffard, Archbishop of York, the Earl of Cornwall, son of Richard, King of the Romans, and the Earl of Gloucester, were appointed guardians of the realm, and proceeded peaceably to the exercise of their authority, without either meeting with opposition from any of the people, or being disturbed with emulation and faction among themselves. The high character acquired by Edward during the late commotions, his military genius, his success in subduing the rebels, his moderation in settling the kingdom, had procured him great esteem, mixed with affection, among all orders of men and no one could reasonably entertain hopes of making any advantage of his absence, or of raising disturbance in the nation. The Earl of Gloucester himself, whose great power and turbulent spirit had excited most jealousy, was forward to give proofs of his allegiance, and the other malcontents, being destitute of a leader, were obliged to remain in submission to the government. Prince Edward had reached Sicily in his return from the Holy Land, when he received intelligence of the death of his father and he discovered a deep concern on the occasion. At the same time, he learned the death of an infant son, John, whom his princess, Eleanor of Castile, had borne him at Acre in Palestine. And as he appeared much less affected with that misfortune, the king of Sicily expressed a surprise at this difference of sentiment, but was told by Edward that the death of a son was a loss which he might hope to repair. The death of a father was a loss irreparable. Edward proceeded homeward, but as he soon learned the quiet settlement of the kingdom, he was in no hurry to take possession of the throne, but spent near a year in France before he made his appearance in England. In his passage by Chalon in Burgundy, he was challenged by the prince of the country to a tournament which he was preparing, and as Edward excelled in those martial and dangerous exercises, the true image of war, he declined not the opportunity of acquiring honor in that great assembly of the neighboring nobles. But the image of war was here unfortunately turned into the thing itself. Edward and his retinue were so successful in the jousts that the French knights, provoked at their superiority, made a serious attack upon them which was repulsed, and much blood was idly shed in the quarrel. This rencounter received the name of the Petty Battle of Chalon. Edward went from Chalon to Paris, and did homage to Philip for the dominions which he held in France. He thence returned to Guienne and settled that province which was in some confusion. He made his journey to London through France. In his passage, he accommodated at Montreuil a difference with Margaret, Countess of Flanders, heiress of that territory. He was received with joyful acclamations by his people. 
and was solemnly crowned at Westminster by Robert, Archbishop of Canterbury. The king immediately applied himself to the re-establishment of his kingdom, and to the correcting of those disorders which the civil commotions and the loose administration of his father had introduced into every part of government. The plan of his policy was equally generous and prudent. He considered the great barons both as the immediate rivals of the crown and oppressors of the people, and he purposed, by an exact distribution of justice and a rigid execution of the laws, to give at once protection to the inferior orders of the state and to diminish the arbitrary power of the great, on which their dangerous authority was chiefly founded. Making it a rule in his own conduct to observe, except on extraordinary occasions, the privileges secured to them by the great charter, he acquired a right to insist upon their observance of the same charter toward their vassals and inferiors, and he made the crown be regarded by all the gentry and commonalty of the kingdom as the fountain of justice and the general asylum against oppression. Besides enacting several useful statutes in a parliament which he summoned at Westminster, he took care to inspect the conduct of all his magistrates and judges, to displace such as were either negligent or corrupt, to provide them with sufficient force for the execution of justice, to extirpate all bands and confederacies of robbers, and to repress those more silent robberies which were committed either by the power of the nobles or under the countenance of public authority. By this rigid administration the face of the kingdom was soon changed, and order and justice took place of violence and oppression. But amidst the excellent institutions and public-spirited plans of Edward, there still appears somewhat both of the severity of his personal character and of the prejudices of the times. As the various kinds of malefactors, the murderers, robbers, incendiaries, ravishers, and plunderers, had become so numerous and powerful, that the ordinary ministers of justice, especially in the western counties, were afraid to execute the laws against them, the king found it necessary to provide an extraordinary remedy for the evil, and he erected a new tribunal which, however useful, would have been deemed in times of more regular liberty a great stretch of illegal and arbitrary power. It consisted of commissioners, who were empowered to inquire into disorders and crimes of all kinds, and to inflict the proper punishments upon them. The officers charged with this unusual commission made their circuits throughout the counties of England most infested with this evil, and carried terror into all those parts of the kingdom. In their zeal to punish crimes, they did not sufficiently distinguish between the innocent and guilty. The smallest suspicion became a ground of accusation and trial. The slightest evidence was received against criminals. Prisons were crowded with malefactors, real or pretended. Severe fines were levied for small offenses and the king, though his exhausted exchequer was supplied by this expedient, found it necessary to stop the course of so great rigor, and after terrifying and dissipating by this tribunal the gangs of disorderly people in England, he prudently annulled the commission and never afterwards renewed it. Among the various disorders to which the kingdom was subject, no one was more universally complained of than the adulteration of the coin. And as this crime required more art than the English of that age, who chiefly employed force and violence in their iniquities, were possessed of, the imputation fell upon the Jews. Edward also seems to have indulged a strong prepossession against that nation, and this ill-judged zeal for Christianity being naturally augmented by an expedition to the Holy Land, he let loose the whole rigor of his justice against that unhappy people. Two hundred and eighty of them were hanged at once for this crime in London alone, besides those who suffered in other parts of the kingdom. 
the houses and lands, for the Jews had of late ventured to make purchases of that kind, as well as the goods of great multitudes, were sold and confiscated, and the king, lest it should be suspected that the riches of the sufferers were the chief part of their guilt, ordered a moiety of the money raised by these confiscations to be set apart, and bestowed upon such as were willing to be converted to Christianity. But resentment was more prevalent with them than any temptation from their poverty, and very few of them could be induced by interest to embrace the religion of their persecutors. The miseries of this people did not here terminate, though the arbitrary talliages and exactions levied upon them had yielded a constant and a considerable revenue to the crown, Edward, prompted by his zeal and his rapacity, resolved some time after to purge the kingdom entirely of that hated race, and to seize to himself at once their whole property as the reward of his labor. He left them only money sufficient to bear their charges into foreign countries, where new persecutions and extortions awaited them. But the inhabitants of the Sank ports, imitating the bigotry and avidity of their sovereign, despoiled most of them of this small pittance, and even threw many of them into the sea, a crime for which the king, who was determined to be the sole plunderer in his dominions, inflicted a capital punishment upon them. No less than fifteen thousand Jews were at this time robbed of their effects, and banished the kingdom. Very few of that nation have since lived in England, and as it is impossible for a nation to subsist without lenders of money, and none will lend without a compensation. The practice of usury, as it was then called, was thenceforth exercised by the English themselves upon their fellow citizens, or by Lombards and other foreigners. It is very much to be questioned whether the dealings of these new usurers were equally open and unexceptionable with those of the old. By a law of Richard it was enacted that three copies should be made of every bond given to a Jew, one to be put into the hands of a public magistrate, another into those of a man of credit, and the third to remain with the Jew himself. But as the canon law, seconded by the municipal, permitted no Christian to take interest, all transactions of this kind must, after the banishment of the Jews, have become more secret and clandestine, and the lender, of consequence, be paid both for the use of his money, and for the infamy and danger which he incurred by lending it. The great poverty of the crown, though no excuse, was probably the cause of this egregious tyranny exercised against the Jews. But Edward also practiced other more honorable means of remedying that evil. He employed a strict frugality in the management and distribution of his revenue. He engaged the Parliament to vote him a fifteenth of all movables, the Pope to grant him the tenth of all ecclesiastical revenues for three years, and the merchants to consent to a perpetual imposition of half a mark on every sack of wool exported, and a mark on three hundred skins. He also issued commissions to inquire into all encroachments on the royal domain, into the value of escheats, forfeitures, and wardships, and into the means of repairing or improving every branch of the revenue. The commissioners, in the execution of their office, began to carry matters too far against the nobility and to question titles to estates which had been transmitted from father to son for several generations. Earl Warren, who had done such eminent service in the late reign, being required to show his titles, drew his sword, and subjoined that William the Bastard had not conquered the kingdom for himself alone. His ancestor was a joint adventurer in the enterprise and he himself was determined to maintain what had from that period remained unquestioned in his family. The king, sensible of the danger, desisted from making further inquiries of this nature. But the active spirit of Edward could not long remain without employment. 
he soon after undertook an enterprise more prudent for himself, and more advantageous to his people. Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, had been deeply engaged with the Mountfort faction, had entered into all their conspiracies against the crown, had frequently fought on their side, and till the Battle of Eversham, so fatal to that party, had employed every expedient to depress the royal cause, and to promote the success of the barons. In the general accommodation made with the vanquished, Llewellyn had also obtained his pardon, but as he was the most powerful, and therefore the most obnoxious vassal of the crown, he had reason to entertain anxiety about his situation, and to dread the future effects of resentment and jealousy in the English monarch. For this reason he determined to provide for his security by maintaining a secret correspondence with his former associates, and he even made his addresses to a daughter of the Earl of Leicester, who was sent to him from beyond sea, but, being intercepted in her passage near the Isles of Seely, was detained in the court of England. This incident, increasing the mutual jealousy between Edward and Llewellyn, the latter, when required to come to England, and do homage to the new king, scrupled to put himself in the hands of an enemy, desired a safe conduct from Edward, insisted upon having the king's son and other noblemen delivered to him as hostages, and demanded that his consort should previously be set at liberty. The king, having now brought the state to a full settlement, was not displeased with this occasion of exercising his authority, and subduing entirely the Principality of Wales. He refused all Llewellyn's demands, except that of a safe conduct, sent him repeated summons to perform the duty of a vassal, levied an army to reduce him to obedience, obtained the new aid of a fifteenth from Parliament, and marched out with certain assurance of success against the enemy. Besides the great disproportion of force between the kingdom and the principality, the circumstances of the two states were entirely reversed, and the same intestine dissensions which had formerly weakened England now prevailed in Wales, and had even taken place in the reigning family. David and Roderick, brothers to Llewellyn, dispossessed of their inheritance by that prince, had been obliged to have recourse to the protection of Edward, and they seconded with all their interest, which was extensive, his attempts to enslave their native country. The Welsh prince had no resource but in the inaccessible situation of his mountains, which had hitherto, through many ages, defended his forefathers against all attempts of the Saxon and Norman conquerors, and he retired among the hills of Snowdon, resolute to defend himself to the last extremity. But Edward, equally vigorous and cautious, entering by the north with a formidable army, pierced into the heart of the country, and having carefully explored every road before him, and secured every pass behind him, approached the Welsh army in its last retreat. He here avoided the putting to trial the valor of a nation proud of its ancient independence, and inflamed with animosity against its hereditary enemies, and he trusted to the slow but sure effects of famine for reducing that people to subjection. The rude and simple manners of the natives, as well as the mountainous situation of their country, had made them entirely neglect tillage, and trust to pasturage alone for their subsistence, a method of life which had hitherto secured them against the irregular attempts of the English, outexposed them to certain ruin, when the conquest of the country was steadily pursued and prudently planned by Edward. Destitute of magazines, cooped up in a narrow corner, they, as well as their cattle, suffered all the rigors of famine, and Llewellyn, without being able to strike a stroke for his independence, was at last obliged to submit at discretion and received the terms imposed upon him by the victor. He bound himself to pay to Edward fifty thousand pounds as a reparation of damages, to do homage to the crown of England, 
do permit all the other barons of Wales, except four near Snowdon, to swear fealty to the same crown, to relinquish the country between Cheshire and the river Conway, to settle on his brother Roderick a thousand marks a year, and on David five hundred, and to deliver ten hostages as security for his future submission. Edward, on the performance of the other articles, remitted to the prince the payment of the fifty thousand pounds, which were stipulated by treaty, and which, it is probable, the poverty of the country made it absolutely impossible for him to levy. But, notwithstanding this indulgence, complaints of iniquities soon arose on the side of the vanquished. The English, insolent on their easy and bloodless victory, oppressed the inhabitants of the districts which were yielded to them. The lords' marchers committed with impunity all kinds of violence on their Welsh neighbors. New and more severe terms were imposed on Llewellyn himself, and Edward, when the prince attended him at Worcester, exacted a promise that he would retain no person in his principality who should be obnoxious to the English monarch. There were other personal insults which raised the indignation of the Welsh, and made them determine rather to encounter a force which they had already experienced to be so much superior than to bear oppression from the haughty victors. Prince David, seized with the national spirit, made peace with his brother, and promised to concur in the defense of public liberty. The Welsh flew to arms, and Edward, not displeased with the occasion of making his conquest final and absolute, assembled all his military tenants, and advanced into Wales with an army which the inhabitants could not reasonably hope to resist. The situation of the country gave the Welsh at first some advantage over Luke de Tani, one of Edward's captains, who had passed the Manau with a detachment, but Llewellyn, being surprised by Mortimer, was defeated and slain in an action, and two thousand of his followers were put to the sword. David, who succeeded him in the principality, could never collect an army sufficient to face the English, and being chased from hill to hill, and hunted from one retreat to another, was obliged to conceal himself under various disguises, and was at last betrayed in his lurking place to the enemy. Edward sent him in chains to Shrewsbury, and bringing him to a formal trial before all the peers of England, ordered this sovereign prince to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, as a traitor, for defending by arms the liberties of his native country, together with his own hereditary authority. All the Welsh nobility submitted to the conqueror. The laws of England, with the sheriffs and other ministers of justice, were established in that principality, and though it was long before national antipathies were extinguished, and a thorough union attained between the people, yet this important conquest, which it had required eight hundred years fully to effect, was at last, through the abilities of Edward, completed by the English. The king, sensible that nothing kept alive the ideas of military valor and of ancient glory so much as the traditional poetry of the people, which, assisted by the power of music and the jollity of festivals, made deep impression on the minds of the youth, gathered together all the Welsh bards, and from a barbarous, though not absurd policy, ordered them to be put to death. There prevails a vulgar story, which, as it well suits the capacity of the monkish writers, is carefully recorded by them, that Edward, assembling the Welsh, promised to give them a prince of unexceptionable manners, a Welshman by birth, and one who could speak no other language. On their acclamations of joy and promise of obedience, he invested in the principality his second son, Edward, then an infant, who had been born at Carnarvon. The death of his eldest son, Alfonso, soon after, made young Edward heir of the monarchy. The Principality of Wales was fully annexed. 
The settlement of Wales appeared so complete to Edward that in less than two years after he went abroad in order to make peace between Alfonso, king of Aragon, and Philip the Fair, who had lately succeeded his father, Philip the Hardy, on the throne of France. The difference between these two princes had arisen about the kingdom of Sicily, which the Pope, after his hopes from England failed him, had bestowed on Charles, brother to St. Louis, and which was claimed upon other titles by Peter, king of Aragon, father to Alfonso. Edward had powers from both princes to settle the terms of peace, and he succeeded in his endeavors. But as the controversy nowise regards England, we shall not enter into a detail of it. He stayed abroad above three years, and on his return found many disorders to have prevailed, both from open violence and from the corruption of justice. Thomas Chamberlain, a gentleman of some note, had assembled several of his associates at Boston in Lincolnshire, under pretense of holding a tournament, an exercise practiced by the gentry only, but in reality with a view of plundering the rich fare of Boston and robbing the merchants. To facilitate his purpose, he privately set fire to the town, and while the inhabitants were employed in quenching the flames, the conspirators broke into the booths and carried off the goods. Chamberlain himself was detected and hanged, but maintained so steadily the point of honor to his accomplices that he could not be prevailed on by offers or promises to discover any of them. Many other instances of robbery and violence broke out in all parts of England, though the singular circumstances attending this conspiracy have made it alone be particularly recorded by historians. End of section 9, chapter 13, part 1. Recording by Fred de Berardinus.